right. Our kids can head to be with our team in Redemption Kids, and the rest of you can grab a seat and open your copy of God's life-giving and indestructible word to the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 49 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, that will be page 609. So 609 of the Bibles that we provide for you. And I don't know about you, but one of my favorite aspects of the Christmas season is the songs that we get to sing together. Uh, I love these songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, certainly a song that's worthy to be sung loudly, whether you're at church or in the shower. Anybody sing in the shower? Come on. We can be vulnerable and honest with one another this morning. That's right, I do. And, um, and not only that, uh, but, but, oh, come let us adore him. I think of all the, the songs of, of Christmas, this is one that uh, probably captures what I, I believe is really at the heart of the Christmas season for those who follow Christ and have committed their lives to follow Jesus, that Christmas offers us a great opportunity to fix our eyes on who Jesus is, why he came, entered the world, left heaven, came to earth, the eternal son of God, becoming man, taking on flesh, becoming like us. It's worthy of our adoration. It's worthy of our awe and wonder that God would even think of us, much less send his son to love us and to offer us the greatest gift, the gift of salvation. And so this song that we sang, it says, behold, come and behold who Jesus is. Come and adore him. And I hope that's what's going on for you this Christmas season hope that this started for you last week. If you were able to worship with us, maybe on your own, you've, you've come to worship in a, in a fresh and a new way. But that's the goal of today, is to, is to behold, to take in, to adore who Jesus is and what he's done. And I just want to encourage you to make every effort to do that. That is, it's not just Sunday morning but it's opening the scriptures throughout the week. Maybe you're aided by a, by a devotional book. There's some really great devotional books to help you uh, peer into the person and work of Christ in the Christmas season. Maybe it's singing songs again and again. Maybe it's praying with one another like we did Friday night at our fire nights, an amazing time to focus our attention on God together. Maybe it's coming to group where Tuesday night, I just have to tell you in my group that meets on Tuesday night, we had an amazing discussion over John's sermon from last week in Isaiah 42 because it says that, that we should behold Jesus who came to bring justice for all people, for the nations. He came to right every wrong. He came to set in order the way the world should be, all the longings of our hearts. Jesus came to fulfill them, and this is who we worship in this Christmas season. In Isaiah 49, this second song in our series, A New Horizon, that Isaiah captures for us, it strikes a similar chord in the very opening verse. Listen to verse 1, what it says. Uh, the, The servant is speaking, the Messiah, the coming Messiah is speaking, Jesus, and he says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. And so as we think about what it looks like to to fix our eyes and to worship 
Christ. These words tell us that Jesus is worthy of global attention. As far as the eye could see or the ear could hear, Jesus is deserving of our attention. And yet you and I both know that we have the same struggle that the people of Israel, the first people to hear these words, had uh, in this day. And that is this, that our attention can be so easily diverted. We're so, we're so quick to focus on so many other things, sometimes so many good and even great things that we miss the greatest one who this season is all about. And so I want to invite you today to behold Christ. We need this as much as the people of Israel did in this day. And let me tell you, they needed their attention on the coming Messiah very, very badly because they had really diverted their attention away from God. If you go back just to the last chapter, we don't have time to read Isaiah 48 this morning, but I want to just give you a few highlights of how we see the spiritual condition, the, the spiritual darkness that had entered the hearts of the people of Israel. It says in verse 1 that they lived hypocritically and denied God's truth, though they confessed his name. Anybody confessing his name this morning? In verse 4, it says that their disposition was one of stubborn obstinance before God. They practiced idolatry, placing their hope in false gods, verse 5. God describes them as treacherous and rebellious, verse 8. Ultimately, verse 18 and 19 tell us that they forfeited the peace and the blessing that would have been theirs if only they had paid attention to God's clear instructions, his beneficial instructions for them. And so we can see just from this brief synopsis of Isaiah 48 that they were in desperate need of words of hope. They were in desperate need to turn their attention back to God and hear of God's hero that he was sending in to the world, none other than Jesus Christ. And so if you would, read along as I read these verses for us from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah writes this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is to Light a thing that you should be my servant 
to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that in these moments, we would practice what the very first instruction of this chapter says, which is to listen and to give ear to what you are saying to us this morning. Father, there is no doubt that we experience difficult and dark times in our lives. There's no doubt that we are aware of the dark and difficult nature of our own hearts before you. So we need your light today to shine into our hearts, to show us who you are, who Jesus is, and why he came as the new horizon to bring your light into our lives and into this entire world. We pray in his name. Amen. I want to give you three truths about this new horizon that we see Jesus bringing here in Isaiah 49. The first truth that I want you to see from verses 1 and 2 is that the new horizon of Jesus arrives with surprise. The, the new horizon of Jesus arrives with surprise. We, we see first God's surprising plan in how the servant enters into the world. We see in verse 1 that it says that the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And so immediately we see that this servant is given by God, the one and only true God, Yahweh the Lord, the God, the Father, he is given a divine purpose and a divine assignment. The Lord is the one who is going to name the name of this servant even before he was born into the world. And so just to give a little perspective, both in retrospect and prospect, if we were to rewind 700 years, we would see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the birth of the coming Messiah, this servant of the Lord, was prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14, when Isaiah writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What is the sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. But then we fast forward 700 years. By the way, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is true and Christianity is legit and Jesus is who he said he is is because of all of the fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. There is more than just this one. Uh, and, and just, you know, go, go do a little research and you're going to find how many there are. 
But, but, but then we see in, in Matthew chapter 1 that this virgin is named Mary. She is God's chosen servant to bring his Messiah, God's Messiah, into the world. And Matthew chapter 1 says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the wonder of the Christmas season. We see here in Matthew's recounting of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 that we have the name of Jesus given by God as prophesied here in, in Isaiah 49. And also the title, his name is Jesus, a very common name, which meant what? God saves. But his, his title will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if those tr- two truths don't inspire a little bit of wonder in your heart, if those two truths don't, don't cause you to kind of step back and pause and be in awe, God has a plan for this world. God has his eyes on you. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son into the world to be with us, to be with you, and to ultimately bring us the salvation that we so desperately need. And so we see that the servant would come in a surprising way. Born of a virgin, God becoming man into this world. But not only does he come in a surprising way, when he comes, he would accomplish his mission by surprising methods. And we see this in verse 2. Jesus is here speaking. The Messiah, the servant, has a voice here through the pen of Isaiah. And he's saying about God, Jesus is saying that God made his mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. You see that Jesus showed up and he didn't conquer like most of Israel thought that he would conquer. Not by military might, not by the force of weaponry, but he conquered by words of truth. He conquered by the force of truth. And so when it talks about this sword coming forth from the mouth of the Messiah, what it's saying is that Jesus would speak truth, and this truth would be sharp and effective. It would accomplish its purposes. It would cut down into people's souls. God, do it this morning to touch places that no one can see and no one or nothing else could satisfy. These are the words of Christ. They give us life. They set us free. They're effective. The, 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 the polished arrow uh, metaphor is, 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 is saying the same thing. It's polished. It's rubbed free from imperfection so that it might fly straight and hit its intended target, even from a distance. And I just want to ask you this morning as we think about Jesus coming and using this surprising method to win the victory, to advance his mission, to change lives just by the simplicity of the power of words. 
words explain reality. This is what's going on. So many people want to say and believe, and so many people do believe, and, and I'm sympathetic, and I understand, and, and I love you know, everyone that, that, that I come in contact with who would say, listen, all roads lead to God, and, and God is, you know, there are all kinds of different paths up the mountain, but everyone is going to get to the same peak, which is God. It doesn't matter if it's Buddhism or Islam or Judaism or Christianity. But, but words have meaning. And if truth exists, and if truth is absolute, then these competing contradictory propositions about who God is, they can't all be true. And so Jesus puts forth a message of deliverance and hope and salvation that is found through him and him alone. And it's interesting how it's, it's worded here that, that this sword is hidden away, that the arrows are, are hidden away, as if to help us see that it's according to God's appointed time that he would reveal his Messiah, that he would send Jesus into the world, as Paul says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come. And now we live on the other side of his arrival, and we see all that he means for us. And so the question for us then is that he's come in a surprising way, and he's used a surprising method of advancing his mission, is have we received his words ourselves? Have we been changed by his truth? Are we being changed by his truth day by day by day by day? Are his words sharp in our hearts? Are they effective? Are they bringing a change in our lives? Are they cutting away the things that aren't very beautiful? And you know they're not very beautiful in your life. And are they replacing with beautiful realities and what the Bible calls fruit of God? that looks like Jesus. He's changing us. And so number one, the new horizon of Jesus arrives with surprise. But then number two, the new horizon of Jesus dispels the darkness. This is what we see in verses three and four. The new horizon of Jesus dispels the darkness. And when, we say, when I say the word dispel, what I mean is that this, to dispel the darkness means that it chases it away. Jesus shows up as the light of the world, as he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. And the light, just naturally, we know this, and this is why he uses this metaphor, when the sun rises, when the new horizon hits each day, the, the darkness of night is gone. It runs by the presence of light. But what we see here in these verses, and I think what make verses 3 and 4 so uh, compelling and, and so applicable is that we can all identify with them so well. You see, the, 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 the summary of the progression of verses 3 and 4, it, it says this, God is with me, but this world is really, really hard. This world is dark and difficult, but God is with me. That's what's going on in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at it a little closer. Verse 3 shows us the intimacy that's shared between God the Father and God the Son. Look at what verse 3 says. It says, and he said to me, again, Jesus speaking of God the Father, God the Father says to God the Son, the servant, you are my servant Israel 
in whom I will be glorified. Let me, let me teach you something right here, okay? Security in your life. Anyone struggle with insecurity? Can I get a show of hands? Anybody ever struggle with insecurity? I'm going to put two hands up, all right? Let me tell you, if your hand's down, you just don't realize that you struggle with insecurity, all right? We're all human beings. We all struggle with insecurity. Security comes from knowing our identity. And knowing our identity comes from hearing the voice of God, the voice of the one who made us in the first place, the one who gives us our assignment, the one who gives us our value and our worth in life. And so we see this. He, he, God the Father says to God the Son, you are my servant. Jesus came to give his life away. That's what John pointed out last week from Mark 10, verse 45, that Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And did you know that giving oneself away is the very definition of love? Loving others is, is giving of oneself for the benefit of them. This is why Jesus came. This is what he did in his life as God's servant. But then we see a title given to this servant. The, the title is Israel. And from the, the pages of the Bible, the first thought, as John explained last week, we, we would see this word Israel, and we would assume that it's referring to the nation of Israel. But it can't be referring to the nation of Israel for two reasons, and we see that here in the text. Number one, we see that God is speaking to an individual. It says, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. So he's speaking to an individual, this, this special, unique individual who would arrive and bring God's deliverance to the people. But we know secondarily that this can't be referring to the nation because we just saw from Isaiah 48 that the nation had already proved that it couldn't save itself. Israel was not fit to save Israel because they were in the need of God's grace and salvation like everyone else. And to dig a little deeper, which leads us to the next phrase, Israel, like us, failed to live out their primary calling and responsibility in life. If you want to understand the Bible, read the first three chapters and keep reading the first three chapters. Because what we see there is that God created man in his image to reflect him, to enjoy him, to know him, to worship him. And that is why we're here. We're here to know God, enjoy God, and to reflect his greatness, to point beyond ourselves to the one who created us and who made us in his very image. But Israel didn't glorify God. They turned from his ways. They rejected his truth. They worshiped false gods. They put their hope in themselves and in false idols all around them. And so they needed a true and greater servant. They needed a true and greater Israel to arrive who would perfectly Reflect the perfections of God, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament in verse 3 says that Jesus is, are you ready for this, the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. 
Jesus is God's servant. He is the one in whom God would be glorified. And we hear echoes of verse 3 in the New Testament. If you go to Matthew 3 and you read the baptism account of Jesus, or you go to Matthew 17 and you read the transfiguration account of Jesus, or if you go to John chapter 12 in the last week of his life when people were wanting to make him king, and Jesus makes this prayer before them and he says, Father, glorify uh, your son because it's this hour that I'm going to sacrifice myself for the salvation of the world. And a voice from heaven says what? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's unmistakably clear that the servant of Isaiah is none other than Jesus Christ as we see the story of Christ unfold. And so the servant knows his identity. And as we look at that, we might assume, well, then, hey, he's going to have a really smooth mission, and it's going to be pretty pain-free, and there's not going to be a lot of trouble or darkness or difficulty. But yet verse 4 shows us that that is not true. And I think this is where so much hope can come into play for us because Jesus experienced the difficulties of our world and he can identify with us. Look at what verse 4 says. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Can you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, would experience the pain and the frustration of this world. And you say, like, this, this, this doesn't sound like the, the, the words that God would say. But think about the, the, the life of Christ. Just, just take some time this week and go read Matthew chapter 16 and, verse, and chapter 17. We see there one of my favorite stories, and it, it just reminds me of myself, you know, because so often I don't get God in his ways. And so the, the, Jesus was traveling with his disciples in a boat, and they were hungry, and they're like, oh, man, we forgot lunch. We don't have any bread. And so Jesus hears them talking about this, but he says, though they're talking about bread, I want to teach them a little something, something. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And again, they're like thinking, they're talking about Jesus saying, you know, we don't have bread. And, and then Jesus says, look, why, why do you think I'm talking about physical bread here? Do you not remember that I fed 5,000 people with next to nothing? Do you not remember that I fed 7,000 people with next to nothing? I'm not talking about physical bread. I'm talking about the false teaching of the Pharisees that works its way through the hearts of people. Or, or maybe it wasn't the misunderstanding of his teaching, but it was the, the, the lack of power that his disciples so often displayed. If you go on and you read uh, Matthew chapter 17, there's, there's the failure on their part to heal the, the young man that was demon-possessed. Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? We can go back to chapter 16 where after Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, then Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And what does Peter do? He says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This doesn't even include all of the opposition from the religious leaders who put a target on his back and ultimately saw that he was crucified. Jesus knew our difficulty and our pain and our frustration and our darkness. 
but how he worked his way through the trouble of our world is what we keep saying Sunday after Sunday after Sunday at Redemption Hill, and we're never going to get tired of saying it. Jesus fought for vision. He looked up. Even in the midst of his difficulty, he turns his eyes back to God. And he says what at the end of verse 4? Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. He had confidence because he knew who God is. He knew that God is sovereign. That means that God is in control. He knew that God was his strength, that he, no matter what he would face, even death by crucifixion, which we don't, can't begin to understand how intense and abhorrent that was, God can give him strength in those moments, and he did. And so I love this picture of Jesus, that, that Jesus comes and he dispels the darkness as he moves forward in his mission. But, but, but what I love even more is what we see in verses 5 through 7, is that Jesus showed up, and he didn't show up for this small, tiny, microscopic you know, portion of the world, just, you know, just, just a few hundred thousand people or a few million people, he showed up to be a light for all nations. The new horizon of Jesus that has risen over this world lights up the entire world. So, so do you see the progression here? Verses 1 and 2 show us the method of the mission of Christ. Verses 3 and 4 reveal the challenge to his mission. But verses 5 and 6 show us the scope of the mission of Jesus. Verse 5 tells us that his first priority was to bring back the people of Israel. This is what it means when it says that he is going to uh, bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. So, so what we need to understand fundamentally about the mission of Christ, what salvation is all about, are you ready for this, don't miss this, is that Jesus showed up to restore our relationship back to God. That's why he came. That is our most fundamental need. But he's not just going to do it for Israel. I love the words of verse 6, and this is the ultimate priority. The first priority was Israel, but the ultimate priority was the entire world. Look what it says in, at the beginning of verse 6. Don't you love this? God, and sometimes you just feel like, you know, kind of God talks smack sometimes in the Bible. It's like, you know what? I'm going to show you how big and how bad I am. So he says, it is too light a thing. Like, this is way too small. Just Israel, way too small. Just Israel, this is beneath my servant's dignity and capacity. He's going to show up, and he's going to show up for the entire world. Every person our eyes would ever see. Every ethnicity under the sun. Every person that you bump into on the train, every person that you work with in your workplace, can you believe it? God sent his son because he loves them and because he wants them to experience his salvation. And this is true for the person that you look in the mirror at every single day? Have you experienced the salvation of Christ? 
Have you received his love? Do you know that he came for you, that he loves you, that he's crazy about you, that he wants to have a real, vibrant relationship with you? He's given you the greatest gift by sending his son into the world that you might treasure him and receive him into your life as your savior and as your king. Jesus is a light for the nations that God's salvation might reach to the end of the earth. I love what Alec Motyer says about this Hebrew scholar. He says that the better way to put this, the better translation would be that you may be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Did did you catch that? Not just simply that my salvation would reach to the end of the earth, but Jesus, the servant, the savior, the Messiah would be salvation to the ends of the earth. What, What is this? How does this help us? It teaches us that Jesus does not just deliver an instrument of salvation. Jesus is our salvation. You see, salvation is found in a person. It's who he is and what he's done. This is what, this is what the, the earliest followers of Christ would, would articulate in the beginning of stages of the church in Acts 4.12. They say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no under na- name given under heaven by which people must be saved. And so we, we want to look for other avenues and means. We, we think that our good efforts or our good deeds or our good works could do it, our devotion to God. But salvation is located in Christ. That's why we have to look to him to receive. We have to put our faith in him and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection. He is the salvation of God that appears for all nations. And this also teaches us that God desires for every person on the planet to know about his gospel, to hear the gospel, and to be saved. Who knows that Jesus is not an American God? Who knows that Jesus was not white? I pulled this off my Christmas tree this morning. Who knew Jesus had blonde hair? All right, what we're going to do this afternoon is we're going to get out our paintbrushes. We're going to put some brown tone on this skin, and we're going to darken up that hair, all right? Because Jesus was not white. Jesus was a brown Middle Easterner who showed up for the brown, for the white, and the black. And every skin tone under heaven. This is what we love about our God. This is what we love about ministry in Boston, representing Jesus in Boston. The whole stinking world is gathered in Boston. More nations that we can count are around here. And it's our privilege to go and to tell all, we celebrate the diversity of our church. The two women that are going to be baptized today, they don't look like me, and I thank God for that. God is a God for the entire world. His vision, the ultimate vision that the Bible portrays 
is that there will be people, Revelation chapter 7, let me read it for you. John says this, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. From where? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are standing before the, lo- the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All nations. Every language ever spoken on this earth. All means all. Every means every. God's heart is for the world. That's why when we talk about mission at Redemption Hill, we're not just focused on the city of Boston. Yes, we love the city of Boston. We have big dreams and big vision for the city of Boston. We see a new Boston and a new New England and this city being changed over the next decade or two or three. Where people want to write about it in That's our prayer. But it's not just for Boston. This is why we support missionaries and we give financially to uh, the International Mission Board that is focused on reaching unreached people groups. Let me help you out with that. A people group is an ethno-linguistic, that's hard to say, ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity that is shared by various members. But an unreached people group is where less than 2% of those people in that people group are evangelical Christians who have believed the gospel in the ways that you and I have heard the gospel and hopefully have believed the gospel or maybe even today are going to believe in the gospel what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And so this is why we're sending a team to South Asia. This is why we support missionaries scattered all over Africa and Asia with our giving each week and with the teams that we send out. And so the point of Isaiah 49 for us to consider today is this. I love this visual imagery. Jesus is the new horizon over Boston and the world, bringing salvation to all people, all people. And so I have three questions to close that are Quite brief, but I hope you'll search your heart and answer them with integrity and authenticity. Number one, have you received his salvation? What I mean by that is, have you heard this news, this news that comes like a sharp, effective sword that is designed to heal you from the inside out? Have you said, yes, Jesus, I open my arms to you, and I receive the gift that you have offered me in your life, death, and resurrection. If you know that you do not have a real, vibrant relationship with God that is designed to give you life, peace, and joy, and hope now and forever, guess what? You can do that today. You can experience that today. If we had time to go on and read verses 8 through 14, we would see, actually verse 8, let me just read it. Thus says the Lord, in a, a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Guess what? This is the day of salvation. Jesus has arrived. We get to experience life in his name. So if you, if you have never said yes, if you never surrendered your life over to Jesus to experience his love, please do so today. Let today be your day. But then number two, are you experiencing his salvation? 
So many times we hear the word salvation. It's like, yeah, I prayed to receive Christ and God saved me and I'm good to go. But it's not just that we have been saved, but the Bible says that we are being saved. We are, we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is that we get to experience more and more freedom that Jesus died to bring us. We're freed from the chains of despair for a new and lasting hope. How about this Christmas season? Is anyone ready for this? That we're freed from the chains of selfish greed for a new generosity. How about freed from the chains of crippling fear for a courageous love to the people around us? Because guess what? I love this. As we experience more of God's salvation in our lives, then we will be in the best place, the very best place to then answer affirmative for this next question. Are you spreading his salvation? If God's heart beats for all people, every person in your neighborhood, every person in your workplace, every person in this city, every person in this world, we can't be cavalier and complacent when it comes to the mission of God. And God, forgive me. God, forgive me for so many days when I'm so focused on myself. That's not preaching for effect. That is a confession of my own flaws and sin. Yes, I called it sin. If God says do it and you never do it, that's sin. But his grace is sufficient and he keeps working with us and he keeps changing us and he keeps empowering us day by day by day to live the lives that he's called us to live. Let me close with the words of missiologist Chris Wright when he says this. It is not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Let's be a church that is actively engaged in God's mission. Because he is that good. And we love the people around us like he has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would so compel us by the Christmas story. That we would grow in our awe of you and wonder and adoration and daily worship. That we would keep digging into the truths of your scriptures that show us who you are and who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that, God, we would experience more of your salvation day by day after we've said yes to you, that we would say yes to you again, that we would say yes to you for the thousandth time, that we would say yes to you for the hundred thousandth time. So that as we live the lives that you've called us to lead, more and more people, more and more diverse people could know that you came as a light for their salvation as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.